Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami For this evening's talk in the Rains Retreat of 99, I'm going to give a talk following a request by one of the monks who asked if uh, at this time in the Rains Retreat I could talk about jhanas. <coughs> Even though that for some meditators that might be a long distance away, nevertheless talking about such sublime states does create inspiration. Also, it does map out the territory which lies ahead so one can understand if one is going in the right direction. And it gives information of what to do if one gets close to any of these very profound states of mind. And also it gives an understanding of the Dhamma the understanding especially into the third noble truth of the cessation of suffering because by entering one of these states the, the bliss, the rapture <coughs> of these states is dependent upon the amount of samsara literally which you temporarily, temporarily let go of. So even talking about jhanas even though they may be a distance from you is uh, of well worthwhile. Usually I like to <coughs> start the explanation of jhanas not from a theoretical point of view but from the practical point of view of the meditator starting from uh, the platform of what I call the beautiful breath. It's a waste of time talking about those things before that stage because if the mind hasn't got enough uh, contentment, stability, awareness to be able to hold the breath for long enough so that the mind settles down and the breath appears beautiful, the breath appears subtle, <coughs> then you know, one is still uh, quite a long distance away from these states which we call jhanas. The meditators should try and cultivate that state of the beautiful breath or cultivate the uh, other meditation subjects to the same equivalent stage where one can hold that meditation object for long periods of time effortlessly. And I think that many of you understand now why I call it a beautiful breath because it is the very beauty of that object of mind which keeps the attention fixed without effort, without will, without force from the meditator. <coughs> this is where the mind does reach a natural stability, a natural degree of peacefulness. That degree of peacefulness is the result of the activity of the, the mind, the activity of having to hold it still, the activity of when it's not still. All of that busyness of mind when it's overcome gives rise to a sense of peace and from that peace comes this, this perception of beauty. <coughs> you know that the way I teach is to cultivate those perceptions of beauty. At this stage in the meditation you should not try and cultivate such uh, negative perceptions as a super, the perception of the, the ugly. You should not develop the perceptions of anicca on that object because you wish to stabilize it, to keep it constant in your mind. If you bring up the perception of impermanence, it might just fade away straight away. Nor should you develop the perception of dukkha towards that image in the, of the beautiful breath. 
you may <coughs> develop asupa, anicca, dukkha towards all that which lies outside of the meditation object. But please don't apply it to the meditation object yet, otherwise the sustained attention will be broken. The very reason that you can sustain your attention on these things effortlessly is because you're perceiving the beauty. You're perceiving something which can last a long time. You're perceiving something which is delightful. So cultivate those perceptions within the beautiful breath for long periods of time. When you have the mind focusing on one object which hardly changes, when you have the mind focusing on an object like the beautiful breath to the exclusion of almost all of thought, all naming, then there is the opportunity for that (coughs) breath to become even more refined. So refined that the physical feeling of the breath can very easily slip away from the attention to reveal what the mind regards as the breath. In this way of meditation, just so often, I was confused about when I should be watching the breath, when I should be letting go of the breath, and wondering whether even playing with nimitters, what was I watching? Was I supposed to be watching the breath or what? And it took a long time and a lot of insight to be able to understand quite clearly that what I was watching when I was watching the breath was both the the experience as seen through the the fifth sense of uh, kaya vinyana, through bodily sensation, and also the image is seen through the, the sixth sense of mana vinyana, through the mind. But it was a coarse physical sense which was dominant. <coughs> that gave <coughs> gave rise to the perceptions of breath going in, breath going out. But as those things calmed and the breath became very, very beautiful, the beautiful part of it was actually the the mental object, how the mind saw that breath, how the mind perceived the breath, not how the physical body was perceiving it. And this was a time when, you, as it were, you started with just breath and from that the beauty came up and from the beautiful breath the beauty grew and grew until there was just beauty without breath. That the beauty began to dominate until it completely overwhelmed that which was called breath and all that was left was the beautiful. It was the mental counterpart, as it were, of the breath. And this is where one gets into the realm of these fascinating but elusive things which we call nimittas. The nimitta is just the sign of the mind. In the first uh, part, this is how the mind sees that breath. So you do not need to concern yourself about having lost the breath. What you've retained is just one particular aspect of a a very calm and peaceful breath. The beautiful aspect of it. It's just like seeing like seeing a diamond. And instead of just seeing the facets, the shape, you're just seeing its beauty, its sparkle. Where the mind is paying attention to nothing else except just the, the beauty and the sparkle of what you're observing. Meditators can very easily get lost in this stage simply because they're not used to mental objects, pure mental objects, without a a grounding in some physical object. This is again where you need the quality of sadhar, faith, if you haven't got the, the panya, the wisdom born of experience of these states. Have confidence that if you've been developing the beautiful breath for long enough, and the breath disappears, and what you're left with, however it, expe- it, however it appears to you, 
must be the mental image of that breath. (coughs) For most people, but not all, that will occur as a light in the mind. For others, it will just occur as a, a feeling similar to a bodily feeling. But if you can uh, contemplate that stage after the the beautiful breath disappears and leaving you just the beautiful, the the pity sukha, the light or whatever it is, if after the meditation is finished you perform that reflection which I advise at the very end of each meditation, to see then, to assess then, to figure out then what was going on. You should be able to discern that what you saw was not a light. It was very different than how the eye sees forms. That what you felt there was not a physical feeling of rapture or bliss. Because it's not the same which you feel with a physical body. It's something similar but not the same. All of the nimittas which come up, whether they are lights or whether they are uh, similar to physical feelings, this is just the way that perception tries to get hold, to understand, to interpret what is one of the first pure mental images which you experience in your practice. It is us who are adding the light to that experience. It is us who are adding the physical feelings, as it were, to those experiences. That is not a light. That is not a physical feeling. It's a pure mental object. Because it's energetic, because it's full of pity, sukha, it appears to many as a beautiful light. And it doesn't matter at all what colour it is, what shape, what size. It does not matter the particular type of bliss which you, you name it. All you are doing is you're going through the filing cabinet of your experiences, trying to find something in your memory which is similar enough to what you've just experienced in your meditation to try and give it a name. If you've seen beautiful objects which are white or gold or green, that image would appear to you as one of those colours. That's all it is. It's just the mind adding on these perceptions. Once you know how this whole process works and you know how much is added on and how much is is actually part of the mental experience. You can find your way quite easily through this stage of meditation. When you understand that the colours are unimportant, the shapes are unimportant, you can understand that what is important are such things as stability, such things as, (coughs) as energy, which is measured by the brightness, by the brilliance, by the depth of colour in that mental image. By such things as its attractiveness. Its attractiveness is what I like to call beauty. Some other people might call it sweetness, delightfulness, whichever adjective you wish to call it is not important to understand that that mental counterpart of the breath, (coughs) the image which is either visual or or sensory with talking about the physical feeling, it has to be stable, it has to be beautiful, it has to be bright. The brightness, the power of that state very much depends upon your energy. That's why that I encourage people, meditators, to linger longer than they would want to on the beautiful breath, just to build up the energy. Because so often people leave that beautiful breath 
And whatever image appears in the mind, whatever nimitta, uh, visual or, or, or physical like, it's too weak, hasn't enough energy. If one sees a light, it's dull. If one has a feeling, it's nice, but it's not good enough. And because it has not enough energy, it's hard to sustain attention on it. Fades and disappears. That's why if you stay on the beautiful breath that little bit longer, you are building up energy. You're building up the energy of peace, adding peace upon peace upon peace, just like building up a fire, adding more and more fuel onto it until it's blazing very, very bright. And sometimes that's what one needs to do. If a nimitta is not strong enough, don't attend to it yet, but go back to the beautiful breath. Later on, <coughs> you may develop the skill of taking a dull nimitta and brightening it up, but don't try that yet. It's best to go back to the beautiful breath. When that nimitta comes up, visual or, or similar to physical feelings, remember what caused it to come up. It was the degree of peacefulness which you had. That degree of peacefulness, or to put it in other words, a degree of samadhi. The degree of the ability to sustain your attention, to let it be without interfering, disrupting or annoying what you're experiencing, was what caused that nimitta to come up. Understanding the causes of these things makes it very (coughs) very clear that if you remove those causes, the whole nimitta will disappear. If you start to interfere, if you start to try and control, then you irritate that nimitta. It disappears very quickly. It's born of sustained attention, of silent awareness. It's born of letting go. It's born of clear attention which doesn't interfere. When you understand what gives rise to this, then you understand that if you remove those causes, the whole thing goes. You have to learn how to sustain your attention on those limiters by literally doing nothing. You understand that if that nimitta, whether it's a physical or, or a visual experience, that if it's very, very strong, very, very beautiful, very attractive, that one experiences a sense of the place where the attention is coming from being drawn in to that nimitta, or that nimitta being drawn in to the place, as it were, where you perceive attention has its source. Again, attention doesn't have its source anywhere. This is just the way the mind perceives it. (coughs) It can only, the nimitta and the source of attention can only draw each other when the nimitta is very beautiful. It's the beauty of the nimitta, the energy of it, which creates that attractive force. It is like a magnet drawing you in. It's the beauty of it which entrances and captures the mind. But it also needs a stability to be able to leave it alone so that this is a natural process which happens all by itself. I've told a few people in their interviews that the nimitta is a word which was used by the Buddha for the image in a mirror when you stand in front of it to brush your teeth or to wash your face. That which you see is called a nimitta, a reflection of your face. And it's a very beautiful simile or metaphor, the metaphor of a mirror. Because that nimitta which appears in front of you, as it were, is a reflection of the mind of the jitter. 
is a reflection of the jitter in the mode of that which knows. Consciousness, if you like, mind, if you like. And you understand whenever you look in front of a mirror that if you want the image in the mirror to be still, and you go and try and hold the mirror still, that does not keep the image still at all. In fact, if you go and try and hold the mirror and keep the mirror still, you see the image in it moving. The only way to keep the image in the mirror still is to keep that which watches it still. I use that simile because so often when a nimitta comes up, it's as if a person grabs onto the mirror, tries to hold the mirror, tries to mess around with the mirror, and they sometimes get surprised why it is that the nimitta disappears or the nimitta becomes unstable. It's because that which is watching is unstable. You're doing something. The only way to keep the image in the mirror still is for that which is watching to be still. So instead of putting the attention on the nimitta as it were, and trying to keep the, the nimitta still, see if you can put, as it were, the attention on the observer. Keep the observer still. And then the nimitta will become as still as you require. When <coughs> the nimitta becomes still, the mental object becomes stable. The mental object becomes beautiful. It means that the attention can sustain itself upon that, can be satisfied with that, can be content with that. Remember, so satisfaction and contentment is another way for saying just stillness, peacefulness. It's only then that the jhanas can develop and can occur. The usual experience is that that nimitta just enveloping one or diving into it and what's most important is going to a state subsequently which has a great degree of stability and a great degree <coughs> of strangeness even because in what they call the first jhana. The ability to think has gone. The ability to uh, assess has gone. And also, most importantly, the ability to uh, pick up information from the five sense world has gone. One of the most important descriptions of the first jhana is being cut off from the world of the five senses. In the classical description, wiwichewa karmehi, aloof, separated, cut off from the world of these five senses. Karma loka, all that you have known so far has disappeared. That's what gives it the strangeness, the state of consciousness which is nothing like you've known before <coughs> because its field of perception is missing just about every landmark, every feature which you've been accustomed to ever since you were born and before. And that gives it the strangeness, the weirdness. But it also has the, uh, the quality of great bliss and beauty that great bliss and beauty, that feeling, that mental feeling of deep satisfaction, deep contentment, which, by the way, is the reason why it lasts so long. <coughs> that is the glue which keeps the attention in that state, just the bliss of it. After a while of knowing these states, you can understand what sustains each of these states and how you spend so long in them. You understand that if you only go in there 
for a short time, just for a few seconds, that's not really uh, called a jhana. Just to join the bliss weren't strong enough. If it were strong enough, you'd have stayed there longer. Sometimes people say they just make resolutions to go in there for a second or two, a minute or two. I can't really see that possible, not just for a minute or two. Maybe if you're very skillful, 10 or 15 minutes. But usually these states last for long periods of time. Just in the same way for those of you who look at the the time scale of those devas who were born in the jhana realms. The lifespan in those deva realms is huge. Many eons, hundreds, thousands of eons sometimes. And an eon is the time between a big bang or a big crunch or whatever. Incredible amounts of years. And the reason is because these are such stable states that very little can disturb them. That's why that if you enter these states you usually stay quite some time. And while in these states because the thought, especially that gross part of thought which we call willpower, just cannot arise. Because of that you can't suddenly decide, I've had enough now, I'll come out. <coughs> this is the mind's business. Will is coming from self. And so, <coughs> and so that these are uh, qualities of these states. While you're in those states, there's no way that you can assess or figure out what's going on. That is why that in those states you cannot assess what's going on. That I encourage, as part of the training in meditation, to set aside the period at the end of each meditation for such assessment. Usually it would happen quite naturally, but it's good to train oneself anyway. Once one emerges from one of these states, what was that should be the question. The mind should go back using the faculty of memory and your experience and the memory of those states will be very clear because the awareness within those states is very sharp. These are not states of dullness. These are not states of confused awareness. These are states of heightened awareness, a very sharp awareness, but awareness which is frozen, as it were, unable to move very far, just completely consumed with the the bliss of these experiences. When the mindfulness uh, experiences that bliss for long periods of time, it remembers very clearly. And this is why after the state has uh, evaporated, as it were, when the mind emerges, you ask yourself what that was. In particular to ask yourself what was the quality of that bliss. you'll find that the quality of that bliss will define which particular jhana you had entered. If it was a bliss, which the only way that I can describe it, has a wobble in it. A bliss which uh, lacks the, the firmness, the stiffness, the solidity of that which comes later then you know that's the first jhana. If it's the case that in that state you could think the thoughts arose and passed away. If you know in that state you could feel the body, the physical body, or hear sounds outside, you should know very clearly that that may have been a deep state of samadhi, but it does not qualify as the first jhana. The five senses were still active and therefore it cannot be Wiwichewa Karmehi, separated aloof from the field of the five senses. You haven't left Karma Loka, the world. (coughs) So you look and see what was happening. 
and you'll see that what we call like the wobble. That's my terminology, I've never heard anyone else call it that. But this is what this Vitaka Vichara business is all about. This Vitaka Vichara which some meditators who almost certainly haven't experienced these jhanas I think, <coughs> say is, is thought. What thought is, is too coarse to occur in these states. The truth of the matter is that the source of attention, the mind, is watching the bliss and gets, brought, caught, gets attracted, drawn into that bliss. As it gets drawn into those blissful states, because it still hasn't got enough trust, enough experience, enough understanding, because the five indriyas aren't strong enough, that it thinks it has to hold that bliss, like a person holding on to the branch of a tree it grasps and grabs. Because it grasps and grabs, the stability is disturbed and the mind recedes from that object. It does not recede very far because of the power of that bliss. And that power of that bliss, as it were, draws the attention into itself once more. This wobbling, this yo-yo effect, the vitaka is just the mind going towards that object. Not pre-verbal, cannot qualify as the word thought, but it's still a movement of the mind which can be discerned after the meditation finishes or the time for reflection. You can see that why the mind recedes, because the mind holds on to that bliss with that last little vestige of any effort and that is what disturbs that is what makes the mind recede that holding on is called vichara vitaka move towards the image hold on and you go back so you have to go forward again this vitaka vichara the wobble in the meditation, in the jhana. But you're still fully within the world of the mind. There is no other five sense activity, just the bliss, the joy of having left that world. And as you analyze the bliss of that state, you see that the reason why that bliss has come is because you've left a great deal of irritation. It's like being free from a sickness you've had for many years. You've had all your life. It's like a person born with a headache who for the first time in their life finds some magic medicine or remedy and that headache is gone. Or like Ajahn Chah's beautiful simile of someone born with a rope around their neck being pulled tight by two demons. And for the first time in their life they manage to release the rope so they can breathe. It is why that each of these blisses is, can be compared to the bliss of freedom, of having left a prison, having been freed from an illness, having escaping from some suffering. That's why that each of these jhanas is called vimutis, or vimokas, sorry, Remokas meaning freedoms. Freeing yourself from the world of the five senses is the very cause and source of that bliss. As long as those five sense world has disappeared and is not uh, accessible to that mind, so long will that bliss remain. And of course, it's that particular insight of the source and the cause of the bliss you experience in the first jhana and the higher jhanas even will give you the great insight into the nature of the first noble truth 
that this whole physical world of sight, sound, smell, taste and touch in whatever form, however refined, however delightful to those people who know no better compared to the bliss of freedom when that whole world disappears anything the five senses can offer is nothing. That's why the Lord Buddha actually called the happiness of the five senses Milha Sukha and I think it's an accurate translation because Milha was quite a, a, a bad word for urine it's piss happiness whereas the happiness of jhanas the happiness of being freed from the world of the five senses he called it even Sambodhisukha the happiness of enlightenment not quite full enlightenment but close enough footprints of the Buddha they were called places where the Lord Buddha stood freed from that world for that time even though it's only a temporary freedom from that world it shows the mind what is possible it shows the mind the extent to which the world of the five senses is covered over with suffering, with dukkha it shows you there is an alternative that there is a freedom and that freedom is worthwhile and that becomes the great powerful knowledge and insight which results in even the first experience of the first jhana many meditators who get a glimpse of those sorts of states want to become monks or nuns the reason is because they've glimpsed something which is so much more delightful, blissful, beautiful, refined, wonderful than anything the world can offer and that's something which the mind sees and remembers and which it cannot give up even though that it might not quite like the idea of being a monk or a nun if you experience one of those jhanas the mind wants to ordain whether you like it or not that's why in the Chula Dukkha Kanda Sutta if I get it right that the Lord Buddha told his cousin Mahanama it's only because you Mahanama haven't experienced those jhanas that you're still content to live the lay life if you'd experienced any of those jhanas you'd go off and become a monk you can see the truth of that statement I've, having said that that I feel a bit uh, that I shouldn't even question that the Buddha told anything other than the absolute truth but you can understand just the power of that statement coming from the, the Lord Buddha, the enlightened one that's the first jhana sometimes they say five jhana factors vitaka vichara the piti sukha ekagata ekagata is just this mind coming to one point one peak one summit I like the word agga it's like, like the highest supreme the supreme oneness as it is, even the first jhana, that, that ekagata to oneness, it's only roughly qualifies for one oneness because there is still that, that movement there. But it's supreme enough that the Lord Buddha gave it that, that title. But when we say five jhana factors, these are just aspects of one and the same thing. There's only one object of mindfulness in the first jhana and that object remains just with the wobble for long periods of time nothing else this is the one-pointedness in time just the sustained object of mind 
unmoving, unchanging. Just bliss, 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 bliss. With hardly a change in the nature of that bliss. That's bliss is piti sukha. The very fact that it remains is its ekagata factor. The wobble is the vitaka vichara factor. But this is just one continuous stable experience. And these are just five facets of one and the same thing. If one comes out of meditation afterwards and that bliss has been solid like a rock where there hasn't been any movement of the mind whatsoever where the bliss has just been there solid, unmoving, unchanging not even a wobble discernible you can know that that was the second jhana this is where the extra factor, as it were, of ajatang sampasadhanang. The confidence, the full delight inside that experience. The internal delight, confidence. This is where the, the mind has so much confidence in that bliss it realizes it does not need to hang on, to hold on, to put any effort whatsoever. It's just a little bit more letting go. I say a little bit more letting go, but it's a final letting go of the doer. In the first jhana there is that, you might almost call it the echo of the doer left. Not a doer which can verbalize, but still the mind sort of controlling a little bit. In the second jhana there's no doing, no controlling at all because there is no movement whatsoever. That's why we call it like solid, frozen, like time has been disappeared. Time is just measured by change but by movement. In the second jhana there is no change, there is no movement for the duration of that attainment. There is just bliss, solid, unchanging, nothing moving, nothing happening, nothing able to be happening. That's why meditators in that experience feel that, <coughs> that they are locked in. Not locked into a dirty, damp, dark, un pleasant prison cell but locked in to a, to a heaven of bliss but still one pointed absolute oneness just a singleness of perception unchanging lasting, unmoving for long periods of time self-sustaining the bliss is so strong it holds the attention in a vice-like grip, a very pleasant grip. <laughs> Here there will be no perception of any type of suffering, but just a very great stillness of the mind, a great bliss of the mind. That, <coughs> that bliss is the bliss which is produced not so much because the five senses have disappeared, that part of the bliss can said to be still present. But the main aspect of that bliss is the fact it's unmoving. At last there is some real stillness in one's perception. At last the mind has stopped. Really stopped and is just there. Not seeking anything outside of itself not even seeking something within itself, but just completely satisfied. So much satisfied, there's no movement at all. There's no need to move. There's no incentive to move. There's not even a wobble, not even a shake. Absolute stillness. But beautiful mindfulness.
the clarity of perception and the power of that state. These are the sorts of perceptions by which you'll describe those experiences after you emerge. The most significant feature of that state of a second jhana is its immobility. That's why it's called samadhi. Sustained attention, so much so, so much sustained on one thing, it's not even a fragment of a movement. Full stillness. All movement has been completely summited, calmed, quieted, until there's nothing moving at all. Such states of no movement are very strange. It's very strange that you can still be aware when literally nothing is happening. Because to happen means to change. Here the consciousness is completely satisfied moment after moment after moment after moment without any rising or passing being discerned of bliss. And because of the nature of that state it has to last much longer than the first jhana. Its stability is so strong that it's hard to knock it over. It's incredibly stable. That's why the experience will last for a very long time in most cases. When one comes out of the second jhana, someone remember someone asked this question years ago. What do you experience when you come out of the second jhana? First jhana. Sometimes but not very long because the mind is on the way out. These jhanas can be compared to rooms of a house. Go through the door, on the outside of the door, the porch as it were, that's the upachara. Sometimes people ask me what is upachara, it's just what happens before you get into first jhana. Get into that first room. To get to the second room, you've got to go through the first room. To get to the third room, you've got to go through the second room. To get out again, there's no back door out of these jhanas. To get out again, you've got to come basically the same way you got in, but maybe travelling a bit faster. This is what happens. After the second jhana starts to break up, the mind starts to move away from the object. But it usually doesn't go too far and it just goes straight back again. Because of the sheer joy and attraction of these states. And you can, you can do nothing about it so often. It's not up to you. That's why that sort of the reflection on these states afterwards gives you marvellous data for anatta, for non-self. You just haven't been there, not the doer anyway. You haven't been, you've been completely out of control. You've completely surrendered. You've completely sort of thrown your your sense of security to the winds and you've given up to this mind then you find it's good fun it's beautiful, it's blissful and this really shows you just how stupid you are you think that by keeping a sense of control of uh, being in charge of all of this being the driver of your car you're going to be safe but you're not being safe at all, you're just opening yourself up for accident after accident after accident, dukkha after dukkha after dukkha. You just let go completely, give up the control. It's like driving along a car, driving along the road in the car, you completely take your hands off the wheel, the feet of the, of the pedals, you don't have an accident, but you just go into bliss. So all of that idea of being secure, being safe, you realise it's just such an illusion. It's just the work of Mara, the deluder. Completely let go and get into these states. This is what one experiences afterwards. That in those blissful states, that which you took to be you, one of the major parts of you was not there at all and you were far better off without you. And that gives you a lot of encouragement to knock you on the head for good afterwards. You've only knocked it on the head for a short time, but now do it properly. 
gives the experience. Sometimes as you go into these jhanas you can aim even deeper than the second jhana. Still the same quality of absolute solidity, rigidity of the experience, no movement. But sometimes when you come out afterwards you realize that the bliss which was the object of your awareness for long periods of time was of a completely different quality. The bliss of the second jhana and the bliss of the third jhana. There's something different there. And this is where you understand what piti means. Two types of bliss, but many people will never understand just the pure form of bliss when that which is called piti is removed. Because the bliss of the third jhana, the sukha, with the piti taken away, because it's so much more refined, so much more satisfying to the attention, to the jitta, it lasts that much more longer. Good way of knowing which jhana you were in was by the length of time which it existed, which it endured. But still completely rigid, unable to move, locked into another beautiful palace of bliss. And sometimes you may even go to the fourth jhana. The weird state where there's no bliss at all, just peace. This peace being the object of the mind. And the mind being fully content with that peace. To be able to last in that peace for great periods of time. When nothing is happening, but you don't want anything to happen. Completely satisfied, drenched, filled, cooled, just with the purity of that attainment. Here, in the, after that attainment, just you realize that even those blisses were disturbance of the mind. In the same way that sometimes people come into this monastery <coughs> and they want to add laughter into this monastery. Noise, chatting, disturbing the peace. Most of you will, dis- will prefer the peace of this monastery rather than the laughter. In the same way, in the fourth jhana, it's just the peace of the mind rather than the laughter of the mind. Just the complete silence, quietness, emptiness rather than the piti sukha. Such a mind, such an experience, such an attainment by necessity will last a long, long, long period of time, many hours. Again, personally, I can't see how anybody could get into a first jhana just for less than an hour. So, get into a fourth jhana for less than an hour. It's impossible. Such a attainment, so the, the fuel of that attainment, the peacefulness of it, just, I can't see what can disturb it. That's why it will last for such a long time. There's nothing left, hardly, creating any disturbance. When you experience these states and come out afterwards, nothing disturbing you. Isn't that what dukkha is, just disturbances of the mind? How much are we disturbed and disturbed and disturbed and disturbed? What we're yearning for is just peace, satisfaction, fullness. Craving (coughs) gives us a promise that once we've followed that craving, we won't need to crave anymore. Once I've become rich, then I won't need to work anymore. Once I've got this which I delight in, then I'll be happy ever after. This is where a lot of happiness is sought for and never found. But what your really, your underlying interest, your underlying goal, 
of satisfaction, fulfillment, not needing to go searching anymore, not needing to sort of go looking for happiness anymore, not needing to be disturbed anymore. These are the places where you'll experience this to a very profound degree. When you emerge from these jhanas, just reflect on which particular one it was by just noticing those those landmarks, those features and having emerged from them, knowing which one it was. Know what caused it, what you let go of. But one of the most powerful reflections after a jhana is asked, why was that so delightful? Even the fourth jhana, even know that there's no pity sukha in that, that's still incredibly delightful. At last you've given away pity sukha. It's even more delightful without it. It's a delight based on the end of an irritation. It's a delight based on freedom. You've freed yourself from something. And once you realize these and you reflect upon it, what caused these things? You're getting some understanding of suffering, the first noble truth. When you attain first jhana, you understand the noble truth which shows that karma loka is suffering, is dukkha. This whole world where human beings and animals and the lower day was play around in, attached to, seeking happiness in, hoping in. And when you see the first jhana, you know there's no hope in this world for real happiness, for lasting satisfaction. The experience of first jhana should be enough to make you an anagami, given up this sensory world, the karma loka. Especially if you can just notice that there's no self as well. You get into the second and third, fourth jhanas. Very, very difficult to miss that these are the bliss states. So much more worthwhile than anything in the world. And you realize sometimes even letting go of the piti sukha, even the mind blisses, the mind happinesses, the happiness of the six senses, letting go of those is far more delightful that you're getting the understanding that even the sixth sense, mano-vinyana and all its objects, the mano-sampasa-pachaya-vedanas, all the, the vedanas based on that sense, are all suffering. You can even let go of the mind, let go of the chitta, the chitta letting go of the chitta, no more being interested in its continuance. Bhava dhanha, the craving to be, even on that deep level, becomes severed. If you can do that, then you're more than an anagami. You've got arahat, fully enlightened. You'll know kina jati, birth destroyed. Those are the benefits of these jhanas. They are not beyond anyone in this monastery. You know what you need to do, the path. Sometimes you can be struggling for many years. Sometimes you don't realize how close you are. Just a slight different attitude as you practice and things start to happen. I was saying to one meditator recently, instead of trying to go onwards to the next stage, go inwards to where you are. Little things like that, simple instructions, a different way of looking at it, just overcomes those 
fine manifestations of craving, the sorts of attachments which you can't usually see unless you practice along this path. When they're overcome, when you actually see your mistake, you see the obstruction, then you dash right through and you get into bliss states. This is the joy of monastic life. This is its blessing, its benefits. It leads to the highest. So this is your opportunity, this is your chance. Please take it, don't mess around. That's the end of the talk. Is there any questions or comments about what I've just been saying? Okay.